0: This message is from Grace Church, located in Frisco, a suburb of Dallas-Fort Worth. The Grace Church website is gracechurchfrisco.org. Craig Cabanis, the lead pastor, is the speaker for this message. We're in a series called The Gathering, where we're talking about what's happening right now, the church gathering together. So here's what we've talked about so far. We've talked about gathering on Sundays, the Lord's Day, uh, working six days, and having a day of rest and worship and gathering on uh, his day, first day of the week. Last week we talked about uh, the role of Scripture in our worship gatherings and how the Word speaks to us and how we respond, that our our worship kind of has a rhythm to it of revelation and response, the Word and then our response to it as we've already experienced this today. And we're going to experience it right now again as I'm bringing the Scripture to you. Today, I want to talk about gathering in his presence. So this is another kind of big idea. We've had some big ideas, the Lord's day, the Lord's word, and the Lord's presence. And uh, starting next week, we'll probably get into a little bit more nuts and bolts of of our gathering together. If I could could say what we've communicated so far and uh, just sort of outline it with prepositional phrases, this would be it. We gather on his day, under his word, in his presence, on his day, under his word. And the reason I say under is because we're under the authority of his word in his presence. Under his word, in his presence. Probably the next one will be for his glory. That's what we're going to talk about for the rest of this series. How do we respond for his glory? So let's read 1 Corinthians 3, and then we'll, we'll pray. Do you not know that you are God's temple and that God's spirit Dwells in you. If anyone destroys God's temple, God will destroy him. For God's temple is holy, and you are that temple. Let's pray. God, these are sobering words that we have just read, and we are amazed by them that we are your temple. And we pray that right now you would make yourself known that you would make your presence um, sensed and understood through your word. We pray that as we look at your word, the God-breathed scripture, that you would open our ears, you would open our hearts, you would soften our hearts, and that you would change our lives. We pray that you would show us the Savior, the glory of Christ, as we gather here this evening. And we simply pray that you would have your way. Uh, We are here for you. We are here because of you, and we are here gathered in your presence, and I just pray that you would uh, make yourself known by your word to our hearts this evening. Come, Lord, and have your way in our midst. Lord, I pray that you would fill me with your spirit to declare your word, and I pray that you would give us all ears to hear what you are saying to us tonight. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. I want to set this little passage that I read to you in context, and I'm going to do so by giving you the context of the whole Bible. Um, I'm going to tell you the story of the Bible, because if you don't understand the story of the Bible, you won't understand uh, what we just read about the church being God's temple. The Bible is one story. Now, there are many... Uh, stories within the Bible, many narrative accounts of different people in their lives, but there is one overarching story. And there's a number of ways to get at that story and to understand that story, but here is one primary way to understand that story, and that's this. The story of the Bible is the story of God and his presence with his people. That's what we're talking about tonight, the presence of God. And this isn't one obscure passage. It's actually the storyline of of the entire scripture from beginning until end. The Bible starts in the garden. God creates Adam and Eve, and he places them in a garden. It's a garden paradise. It's kind of a garden temple. It's where he is present with them. They work. There is no sin. Uh, There is no Uh, problems between them, and there's no problems between them and God. They have unhindered fellowship with God in what is called paradise, Eden. Unhindered unhindered, uh, fellowship with God. He is present with them. They commune with him. They talk with him. They interact with him. They serve him. What happens is that they decide they no longer want to just serve God. They want to be like God. And because of this, they rebel and challenge God, and they, uh, what, what happens is what we call the fall. They sin against God, and among the penalties, and the primary penalty for their sin is they are banished from what? His presence. They are taken out of Eden, the garden paradise, the presence of God, and they are placed outside of Eden. Um, separated from the fellowship that they once knew with God. It is broken. Well, what happens is uh, they multiply and multiply and multiply, and God has not forgotten about his people. God has a plan to restore his presence to his people. And uh, so what he does many generations later is he calls a guy named Abram. He finds this guy, and he says, okay, I am picking you, And you're going to be on my team, and I am going to make a people from you. And not only that, and this is so key, not only that, but I'm going to give you not only a people and descendants, I'm going to give you a land. And that land is going to be the place where God will, in a a, a very specific way, center His presence with His people. Now, God is present everywhere. He's omnipresent, omnipresent, meaning He's at all places equally at all times. But He is particularly present... Unusually present, uniquely present in certain ways, and so he promises that he will make a people, <clears throat> give them a land, <clears throat> excuse me, where he will be present with them. Well, what happens is a few generations later, uh, his pe- this people, Abraham's descendants, end up in Egypt, and they end up as slaves in Egypt. So there's this plan to have a people, but now all their people are under a a pagan ruler where they are serving Pharaoh as slaves. And God raises up a deliverer to bring these slaves into the land where they can once again be in his presence, and he does so... By his presence, he shows up in a bush, a burning bush. God's presence is in this bush that will not burn out. And Moses, the deliverer, sees this bush, and God tells him, speaks to him, his presence through this bush, that I am uh, calling you to deliver my people. So a lot of stuff happens. I'm skipping over, like, entire books. Uh, Lots of stuff happens. But basically, God uh, uses Moses, and he brings all of his people out of Egypt. And uh, brings them into a desert. He then calls Moses up to a mountain, Mount Sinai. And up there, he reveals his presence again to Moses. He reveals himself. He talks to Moses. He gives Moses the law, the Ten Commandments, uh, which you're familiar with. And uh, and he calls the people to the mountain as well. Now God is present on the mountain. They can't see him or interact with him like Moses does. In matter of fact, he says, "If you touch the mountain, you'll be destroyed." There's thunder. There's this this uh, fearful presence of God. That's what's happening on the mountain. There's thunder. There's rumbling, and it is God present speaking. Uh, from the mountain. Well, Moses doesn't come down from the mountain for a while. So the people have an idea. They'll create these statues and they will worship these golden calves uh, instead of worshiping God because he's taking a while up on the mountain with Moses. Now here's where the theme of presence comes in. Moses comes down, he's upset by what he sees, and God tells Moses, I am not going to go with this stubborn people. I'm not going to have my presence with these people who are rebelling and who are opposed to me. And this is what Moses prays. This is so central to the Bible. This is what he prays in Exodus 33. If your presence going into this land, if your presence will not go with me, do not bring us up from here. For how shall it be known that I have found favor in your sight and your people? Is it not in your going with us so that we are distinct, I and your people, from every other people on the face of the earth? This is what Moses prays. We can't go into the land without you, God, because it is your presence that makes us distinct from everyone else. This is the distinguishing factor for the people of God. What separates Israel from all the other people, and we're going to see the church from all the other people, it is the presence of God, which was lost at the Garden of Eden. His intimate presence with his people in worship that was forfeited by rebellion. And and now Moses is saying, we don't even want to go forward. Without you, God agrees to go with the people, to lead the people, and he gives Moses instruction to build a tabernacle. What was a tabernacle? A tabernacle was a tent where God was present. God's present everywhere, but he's uniquely present in this tent where sacrifices take place. Animals are slain by priests so that God's people will be forgiven by the shedding of the blood of animals. So they build the tabernacle, this tent that has all of these very specific guidelines to it. And do you know what happens? When they build the tabernacle, the presence of God shows up in the tabernacle among his people. And when they break the tabernacle down and travel... Uh, God leads them by his presence, which is symbolized by a pillar of cloud by day and a pillar of fire by night. It's a sign the presence of God is with us, and this is what it means to be the presence of God. I mean, the people of God. There is no sense in the Bible of the people of God apart from the presence of God, God with his people. Well, many years later, they get into the land that he told that guy Abraham about so many centuries prior. Fire. They get into the land, and their God says, "I want you to build me not a portable sort of presence, but a more permanently uh, fixed place for my name to dwell." Is what He says. It's called a temple. So they build a temple, an, an elaborate structure, and as soon as it's opened, the presence of God comes into the building again, showing His great power. And uh, it is, as I said, it's a place where He says, "For my name." to dwell. Well, what happens? There are priests, there is worship, there are sacrifice of animals so that our sins, their, their, sins can be forgiven. There are festivals, all this stuff happens, but the people of God disobey God and they start chasing after other gods and God brings judgment. And here's the judgment. A foreign nation comes in and destroys the temple And not only destroys the temple, but gathers the people and takes them into a foreign land. And what was so grievous about that judgment is that they no longer had the temple to worship God. They no longer were God's people in his presence. They were in a foreign land. They were in a foreign place with foreign gods. That's what ached. In their hearts, they longed for the land, they longed for the temple where they would worship their God and meet with their God in a very real and personal way. His unique presence among his people, distinguishing them among all the people on the earth. Well, as they're in this foreign land, Babylon, God brings some messengers. And these messengers, the Bible calls them prophets. They start delivering these messages to people saying, hey, something good's going to happen. Uh, there's something really to look forward to here. Uh, God's presence is going to be with you once again. They promise that one day God's presence is going to be in you. And in Ezekiel 37, Ezekiel prophesied this, My dwelling place shall be with them, and I will be their God, and they shall be my people. Then the nations will know that I am the Lord who sanctifies Israel when my sanctuary is in their midst forever. So the prophets come and say, the, the temple's destroyed, you're in captivity, but God is going to come and his presence is going to be among you once again. Well, there's a rebuilt temple. It never ultimately has the glory that everyone longed for. But then something happened after they returned, after the temple's rebuilt, a number of centuries later, the presence of God comes to his people in a most unusual, unexpected way. God himself comes. In the flesh. His name is Jesus. Jesus comes in the flesh. John says um, the word became flesh and tabernacled among us. God Himself comes, and it was like that tabernacle where the presence of God was with the people of God, that tent where God was uniquely present. Now God is with them in the flesh. And the Bible says God tabernacled with us in the person of Jesus. His disciples were hanging out with God, listening to the very voice of God. Jesus was perfect, He never sinned, He was perfect in every way. As a matter of fact, one of His names was Emmanuel, which means God with us. That's presence. That is presence. God walking on the earth with his followers. I mean, that is amazing, amazing presence. The temple was a place where there was sacrifices for sin, but when God comes in Jesus, God himself is sacrificed for sin. Jesus, God in the flesh, dies on the cross for our sins and he is raised to defeat the power of sin. This is the climax, ultimately, uh, of the story. It's the great event of the story, is that God has become present in Jesus. People reject him and kill him. He dies for our sins like like a lamb, like a substitute for us. He is raised from the dead, and then he does the most astounding thing Imaginable, fulfilling every, all the prophecies that the messengers had brought. He's resurrected, then he ascends, he rises up into heaven, he sits at the right hand of the Father, and then in Acts chapter 2, a book of the New Testament, God pours out his Holy Spirit. That is his presence. His presence, he pours out his presence on these followers, these believers in Jesus, these followers of Jesus. He pours out his presence on them, and all that had been spoken of before takes place. God comes and dwells in people. He gives them new life, a new birth. They were dead inside, but now they are alive with his presence in them, the Holy Spirit. He not only does that, but he begins to change their hearts and give new desires to make his people not seek to conform to an external law, but to change them on the inside so their desires change to want to please them. He pours out his presence on them so that they are bold to tell the good news of Jesus to others, to say that anybody who believes in this Jesus can have their fi- uh, sins forgiven and can receive new life. He gives them spiritual gifts so that they have abilities that they wouldn't normally have to be used by God to affect other people. And then this is what the New Testament says these followers of Jesus are called the church and they are drawn together as the church. And the Bible says what we read a few minutes ago they are the new temple. They are the new temple. That he says when the people of God get together, that's where his presence dwells. It is in the people of God. This is where we join the story. Because as believers, here tonight, we are gathered, we are the people of God, one expression of the people of God in Frisco many expressions, wherever the gospel is being preached, that's the people of God where people believe him. But we're the people of God. We're joined as those who believe in Christ and we are God's house. God lives in this people right here. Where is God? He's right here. Where does God reveal himself most clearly? Right here, where the scripture is taught, the good news is proclaimed, and the people respond. That's where God is. That's the, temp- that's the image of a temple. We think of a church building, and it's often different than the temple. The temple was very unique. It was holy. It was where there was one section of the temple in particular where God was, was most present, And Paul comes and says to the Corinthians here, verse 16, Do you not know that you are God's temple and that God's presence, uh, that God's spirit dwells in you? You are God's temple. Now here's what's interesting. The you, I'm reading from the English Standard Version. I don't know if the NIV does this or the New American Standard, but the ESV does something very helpful. And on you, it has a little uh, footnote. And the footnote says... The Greek for you is plural. This is not individual. Sometimes you hear people say, "My body is the temple of God. I am the temple of God." And Paul does say that in 1 Corinthians 16. And oftentimes people say, like, "The body's the temple. So don't smoke, don't eat fatty foods, buy organic, work out three times a week. Why? Because I'm the temple. Those may be good ideas, but the, the, the truth of the, the temple of God is way more than what you had for lunch today. It is God's presence among his... And by the way, when he does say that, he says... You are the presence, you are the temple of God, so don't sleep with prostitutes at the shrine because you become one with them. He's talking about joining the Holy Spirit who lives with you and becoming one with the prostitute. It's a profound uh, disgrace is what he's warning against. But this passage, and usually when the temple is mentioned in the New Testament, this passage is talking about plural you, y'all or all y'all, or you guys, or wherever unions, wherever you're from, whatever all y'all, the group of people, do you not know that you people, you guys, y'all, men and women, that you are God's temple and that the Spirit lives in you? Wow, this is profound to say. If you know anything about the Corinthians, they are one of the most messed up churches in all the New Testament. And Paul is telling them, you live in a city that is filled with pagan temples. And pagans get this, not just Jews. Pagans get this. If you went to the pagan temple, you assume that the, that the God lives there because there's a statue representing him and the presence of the pagan God is there. So it was not really a, a far different idea than the, than the, uh, than the Hebrew God uh, idea that in the temple... Is where the deity was uniquely present. So they got that from their background. And he's saying in this city with all these temples to pagan gods, if you want to know where the real God is, you look to your little house churches. And you people, with all of your immaturity, the the Corinthians are unbelievably immature, with all your selfishness, with all your pettiness, with all of your arguing and bickering and putting yourself up above other people. Yeah, that group of people in those little house churches, that's where God Almighty lives in their gatherings. It's an astounding statement. It is an astounding statement. And he says it to us too. We're not an impressive lot. We're basic folk here tonight. And God says that that you, Grace Church, are a temple of God. Along with, I'm not saying something unique about us, along with other Christian churches. You are the temple of God. This gathering here tonight, Abraham could only dream of this. Moses. Moses couldn't even fathom what we experience here tonight in the presence of God because of Christ. We are in Christ, and God is present among us. When Ezekiel and the other prophets, they just got a partial glimpse of what was coming, and you're the fulfillment of what they talked about. We're the fulfillment of God's work to dwell in a people that would be marked off as distinct from their culture and where he would dwell and where he would be represented in a powerful way through them. Our little gatherings, our little Sundays at 5 p.m., our Sundays at 5 p.m. are a fulfillment of God's work over thousands of years climaxing in his coming to earth in Christ, dying for our sins and being raised to new life, ascending to the right hand of the Father and pouring out his spirit so that his temple would be found all over the planet wherever believers gather in the name of Jesus to worship him. Can you feel the dignity of that tonight? Do you feel the privilege of being here Tonight, of being counted among God's people, the people of the Spirit. Can you grasp the grace of this? That we have been included in the storyline of history. We have not been left out, we have not been missed, we are not sidelined. We are in the plot line of God's purpose for all of history by being the dwelling place. The people that he inhabits, the people of the spirit. He wants us to be gripped by this reality, that this place is the special place of God's unique presence. Now, again, Paul's going to say that about individuals that are, that we're the temple as well. But the more common fact point is that we together are God's temple. It's funny, the word he uses, do you not know that you are God's temple? There's two Greek words for temple. One is the temple building and its precincts, kind of the broader, the temple the temple campus, however you'd say it, the broader temple. That's not the word he uses here. There's one that means the sanctuary of the temple, where God uniquely dwells. That's the word he uses here. Do you not know that you are God's sanctuary? That's the word. We're not meeting in the sanctuary. We are the sanctuary. And that's why he says in the last phrase, for God's temple is holy and you are that temple. We don't come and sing in the sanctuary. We are the sanctuary. The place, the sanctuary was a place in the temple that the deity uniquely dwelt. And that's what we are. He wants the people of Corinth to get this. Now, this is so interesting. There's going to be a lot of places in Corinth where Paul is going to correct the church. Stop doing this. Stop doing this. This is harmful. This is dishonoring to God and harmful to other people. This is, he's going to do that a lot. But here's where he starts here. His way to correct them is he wants the people of Corinth to understand their identity. Because they they don't know who they are, or they've probably just forgotten who they are. That's why he says, do you not know that you're God's temple? Another way to say is that, do you know who you are? That's what he's saying to them. Do you know what's going on here tonight when the church is together? Do you have any idea? Do you remember who you are when we gather together in this church? Do you know who you are? That's what he is saying to them. It's a rebuke. It's a correction to them. Have you forgotten? See, that's the big problem. The Corinthians have forgotten what Christ has done for them. They have forgotten their identity as the people of God. And we behave out of our identity. We normally behave out of our identity. And they are behaving like those who don't even know that the presence of God is with them, and that they are, in fact, the dwelling place of God. And their behavior doesn't look like their identity. They don't look like people who are gathering as the temple of God. See, what we learn about from the Corinthians from the very first chapter is that they are a divided people. Divided. I mean, chapter 1, Paul says, look, here's what's happening in your church. You have divided up on teams. Like, everybody has their own agenda. Everybody wants to be right Everybody wants, and so they identify with their candidate, uh, or that would be political, or their uh, Bible teacher or theologian or whoever they identify with. They take these names and say, well, I'm like him, so I've got to be right. And so it says in chapter 1 that they're saying things like, I am with Paul. He founded the church. And somebody else is saying, well, I'm over with Apollos. He was like the wisest guy. One of the most articulate communicators and speakers. So I'm with Apollos. Somebody else says, I'm with Peter. He's the man. He was with Jesus. He was at Pentecost. So I go way back before Paul, way back before Apollos. I go all the way back to Peter. And then it says, some of you say, I'm with Christ. I never understood that debate. Like somebody says, I'm with Jesus. Doesn't that trump all the other potential teams to join? If you're waving, I'm team Jesus, you kind of won, right? I don't know how anybody, well, anyway, so, but they're doing that. So they're divided up. In this chapter that we're reading, chapter three, at the beginning uh, you know, chapter uh, verse five, chapter three. He says, "What is Apollos? What is Paul? We're just servants through whom you believed, as the Lord assigned to each. I planted, Apollos watered, but God gave the growth. So neither he who plants nor he who waters is anything, but only God who gives the growth." So he's he's telling them, "Look, why are you dividing up on teams? Not, I'm nothing." Apollo's is nothing. We're like farmhands. We can't make a crop grow. It's all about God. He's the one that did the growth. So he's trying to correct them and say, This is all about God. He next goes to a different, he says that he lays a foundation and he describes a building being built and he says, Everyone's works will be tested at the end. Some people are building with earthly wisdom. And it's going to be like building with wood and hay and stubble. It'll just be burned up through the fire of judgment. Other people are building with gold and silver, and that'll last, those who are building on the gospel. So he's, he's talking to them about what to, to, to be about Christ and to be about the gospel and not about these leaders and their divisions and all these kinds of things. They're separating themselves. And so what he does is to get their attention, he, he, he tries to correct them by pointing to their identity, and he says, look, you you are the temple of God. He uses that theological truth to call them to unity. If God is dwelling in us, if we're one building, if we're the people of God or the temple of God, we can't be separated up. He's letting them know when we get together, the nature of our gathering, the holy purpose of our meetings, the divine reality In the house, and you are the house, not the building. The divine reality of when we gather, when we are God's house, when we gather, the divine reality is is this, that we are one. And he gives this serious warning to them. Verse 17, if anyone destroys God's temple, God will destroy him. For God's temple is holy, and you are that temple. Man, that is is one of the most sobering lines. I've been thinking about that line all week. It's one of the most sobering verses in the New Testament. Because here's what he's saying. When you are doing what we see them doing in the first three chapters, when you are competing in the church, when you are criticizing, judging one another when you are boasting in yourself and your knowledge and putting down someone else, when you're dividing into camps, when you are, as we're going to see later, or we would see if we studied on later in the book, when you are promoting your gifts as more important than others, you know what you're doing? You're desecrating the temple of God. You're tearing down the temple of God. You might as well be the Babylonians coming into Israel so many centuries ago to destroy the temple. That's what you're doing. It made me think about, man, how I speak about the people of God and how I think about the people of God. This call is to revere the people of God. We don't revere a building. Listen, I, am, I don't think there's anybody in the room who's more excited. I, I'm at least tied with you, if you're the most excited, about our new building in Frisco Square. But you can't desecrate. God's not saying, well, that's, the, that's some kind of holy habitation that there's something holy about that building, that it's set apart, like that the bricks of that building are somehow different than any other bricks because they've got gods, they're anointed bricks. No, that's not the case. Um, You know, the, the sanctuary's not over there. The sanctuary's in this room tonight. You're the sanctuary. And when we're speaking against and tearing down and criticizing and judging and being factious like they were doing, being cliquish, we're desecrating the temple. Anyone who destroys God's temple will be destroyed, for God's temple is holy. You are that temple is what the verse says. Wow. So it's not just like, hey, you know, don't be clickish or, you know, don't keep to yourself and, oh, try to be a little nicer to everybody. No, he's, and this is serious stuff. Why? Because the nature of where God dwells and who God's people are as his temple. He couldn't say it anymore Seriously. So here's our identity. God says, you're the people of my presence. And when you gather, you should be aware that I am present and together you are meeting with me. And my presence is the distinguishing factor about you. That's why he says, you are God's temple and the temple is holy. The temple was holy. It was set apart. It was set apart. And he's saying, you are set apart. The church is the people of God, and we can be defined fundamentally as the people of the Holy Spirit, God's temple, who gather in his presence where he is uniquely present to demonstrate his power and his life among us. Well, what does that mean for us? I'm just going to give a few points here of application. Here's the first one that it means for us, is that we must realize the significance of God's presence, and specifically the significance of God's presence among us. And more specifically, his God's, God's presence among us as we gather. One of the leading New Testament commentators on the book of 1 Corinthians, he, he hardly has a peer. His name is Gordon Fee, and he wrote this about this verse. He says, It is difficult to overemphasize the significance of this text for Paul's understanding of the church as primarily a people of the Spirit. That's his primary understanding here, that you are the people of God's Spirit. God dwells in you because of Christ. You're united to Christ because of Christ's work on the cross and resurrection. You now have his Spirit dwelling in you. Romans says, if you don't have his Spirit, you're not part of him. You can't even say you're a believer without the Holy Spirit. All believers have the Holy Spirit. There's not two classes of believers, those who have the indwelling Spirit and those who are waiting. All believers have the indwelling Holy Spirit. And so he is saying that, that that is our primary identity. We are the people of the Spirit, and that's why he calls them the temple of God, verse 16, that God's Spirit dwells in you. Have you forgotten that is what he's saying. Because if you forget that, you will have behavior. You'll have a behavior of, of, of one who has amnesia about your identity. There is a dignity and a privilege attached to being part of the local church. We live in a culture, and I'm not judging all those people out there. I I can be guilty of this. You can be guilty of this. We can be guilty of this. I'm not throwing stones outside this room. I I, I don't know that I'm throwing stones outside this pulpit. I'm not meaning to. But we can be so flippant about the church, and we can be so casual about our gatherings. I'm not talking about casual dress. I'm obviously dressed casually here. I'm not talking about that. I'm not talking about style. I'm talking about heart in response to the Lord. You can have a casual heart in a suit. You can have a casual heart in a pair of shorts. I'm not talking about style. You can have a casual heart, flippant heart towards God with a pipe organ and a hymnal, or you can do it with a band like this. It's a heart issue. We can be so flippant that I wonder if the Lord wouldn't say to some of us tonight, do you not know who you are when you gather? Have you forgotten what's happening when, when we gather? That this is my, where I am present in a, in a unique way. God's present everywhere, but he's present in each of us. He is present in his people because we are the temple. The temple was the location of his presence. It's a place also that we express our unity as a people of his presence. We can think like consumers. Well, I'm going over here. I'm going to this church and going to that church or whatever. If you're looking for a church, please go to this church and that church and find where God's placed you. I'm not talking to you if you're on a hunt for a church. That's completely understandable and, and appropriate. But if you're committed to another church or you're committed to this church, then the reality is we must see that our coming together in the presence of God, it is a statement of declaring our unity. It is a unifying statement. Went to a disunified church. What is one of the first things Paul does? He doesn't say, can't we just get along? One of the first things he does is say, you're the temple of God. The presence of God dwells in you. And when you are together in unity in Christ, the presence of, it is honoring to the presence of God. You are building the temple. And when you are not, you are destroying the temple. That's the language of verse 17. So it's just easy to be flippant. The church is also the place where God reveals himself as a witness to the world. The temple in the Old Testament was a testimony and a statement to the nations. And that's why you see a lot of uh, psalms that will say, declare to the nations. Because the temple was the place where where God was worshipped and his presence was declared to people that didn't know him. Do you know here in chapter 3, he says, you are this, the temple where the Spirit dwells? In chapter 14, he's going to say this. He's going to say, if you all come together and people prophesy, which is a spiritual gift where God gives someone a, a thought, an impression, something to speak that builds people up. He says, if you come together and everybody prophesies and an unbeliever Someone comes in who does not know the Lord, they will hear these words, the spiritual gift of prophecy, they will hear these words, their heart will be, the secrets of their heart will be disclosed, and they will fall down in worship, an unbeliever, they will fall down in worship and say, surely God is in this place. He says... Through the gifts of the Spirit, God reveals his presence that even an unbeliever could come in and at times would come to the conclusion, wow, this is different. This is, the temple is holy. You are the temple. This is different than what I'm used to. And there's something going on here, and I'm surrendering to this God. How could you know those, these things about me? How could you be speaking to my heart? It happens when the word is preached. It can happen during the singing. The presence of God speaking to people so that they say, God is in here. Why? It's not these walls. It's God is with his people and God is speaking by his word. It's a really big deal. God's presence in our midst is significant. The unbeliever will encounter the presence of God. That's what 1 Corinthians 14 says is that God is present among his people one way through his gifts. Encountering the presence of God. That is what we need. That is what unbelievers need. That's what your friends need. That's what your neighbors need to encounter the presence of God. Again, I am so grateful for the building that we're moving into and the opportunity that that will afford for gospel witness. But no one will come to Christ because of a structure. It is the presence of God. I would rather meet in a field with the presence of God than that building without him moving in a powerful way in our midst. We must have the presence of God. That's what alerts. We don't want anybody to go, oh, wow, this is really nice. Wow, this is really good. We we don't want them to say, nice music. Oh, that was a good sermon. We want them to say, surely God is in this place. I sensed something different. And at points, it scared me. It was fearful. I felt, I, I was aware of my own sin and the holiness of God. I saw Jesus loves me, and my heart melted, and I came to him. That's what we want. We want consciences alerted by the Spirit. We want the good news received so that those alert consciences under conviction are, are receive new life and forgiveness. And we want that for ourselves. We need the presence of God working in us. We, we aren't putting on a meeting here. We don't want to be having some kind of dead ritual. We are the residents of the living God, and when we gather, gather, he meets us with his presence. And and saying we're his residents, that's, that's really not my language. He didn't use the word resident, but he says God's spirit dwells in you. A dwelling is where you reside. It's the same thing. We're the dwelling of God. And when we are aware of that, When we are lifting up the Scripture, when there is a revelation of Scripture and a Spirit-empowered response, revelation and response, when that kind of worship is going on in God's presence, it changes people. So, number one, realize the significance of God's presence. Number two, expect His presence. Expect His presence. That's what the Corinthians miss. They have forgotten what the church is. They don't seem to remember that He is there. Do we? Are we aware of God's nearness in this meeting? Are you attuned to God's manifest presence with us, and especially in, in the gathering? Do you know how to detect his presence? There's a practical question. It's like, is it a goosebump? Is it a tear? Is it shaking? Is it... Sorrow, I, how, how, how do we, we'll talk about that for a second, in just a second. But let's start here. We're God's temple, God's spirit dwells in us, so he's present. How, how is he present? In a primary way, he is present through his scripture being spoken, read, listened to, and responded to. It's his scripture. The Bible says of itself that it is breathed out by God. It is the breath of God. So when the scripture is read, when we're hearing it, when it's taught, we emphasized this all last week, so I don't have to retell everything I said last week, but it is God's presence with us. But he is present in other ways as well. The psalm we opened up with, Psalm 105, uh, said, it's a command, sing to the Lord. Seek his presence was in there, verse 4. God is present as we sing, as we sing truth, as we declare truth about God, as we celebrate the person and work of Christ, God is present with us. He's present through communion, and I'm going to talk about that and what that means. He's not literally present as in actual, his actual body and blood, but it's more than just an empty sign. He is, as we receive communion, we receive afresh the truth of the good news by faith. God meets us in a real way. Matter of fact, if we do it in an inappropriate way, Paul tells the Corinthians they're getting drunk at communion because it was a full meal. And Paul tells them because of the way you handle communion, some of you are getting sick and some of you are dying. God's killing people because they are not receiving communion with reverence for the body of Christ, and they're getting drunk and excluding people. It's a bad communion service. Uh, And, I mean, it can't can't be any worse. And he says that your meetings do more harm than good is what Paul tells them. I've preached some flat sermons. We've had some flat services, but I don't think usually it's more harmful than good, you know. But that's what what theirs, theirs was. So he's present as we receive communion. He's present through spiritual gifts. I already gave the example of 1 Corinthians 14. Surely God is in this place. That's kind of a more unusual gift prophecy. But do you detect God's presence through, I don't know what to call them, more common gifts? I I don't know what else to say. That sounds, I'm not saying they're not special because they are of the Lord. But when someone's running the soundboard and using the gift of helps, something the Lord has given them to serve the lord's present in that when someone's teaching in children's ministry teaching is a gift a spiritual gift to teach god's word god's present when someone prays for people at the end of the service and has mercy mercy is a spiritual gift there's mercy extended that's, that's god meeting people hey we can think oh well she's got such a uh, she's kind of soft-hearted she really uh, the lord made her that way and the lord is caring for people through her generosity people through giving generosity is a gift serving we're all called to serve but some have unique gifts of service again again i can't say well i'm not helping out because that's not my gift need the need the dishes done oh god didn't give me that gift they just need to be done okay So we got to pick things up. Things got to be done. But there are some people, and you know them. You meet them, and you go, wow, they are everywhere, joyfully engaged. And if you told them they couldn't do that role anymore, it would be crushing because they serve. They just want to bless and care for other people. It's a unique gift of serving. So maybe some of our ushers or others would have that. Gift of hospitality. The Connect team. There's a gift of hospitality. We're all called to be hospitable. Some people have to try. And for others, it's just who they are. So it's a calling for all of us, but it also can be a gift. Leadership, through the direction we receive in this meeting or is being received over in children's ministry, there is a leadership gift. So there are, there are gifts being expressed in the church, and we can detect God's presence through that. Have you ever been in a worship service, a worship gathering, where you suddenly became aware of God's presence? And I think that's good language. Became aware of God's presence. Because we're God's temple, right? So he's already here. We became aware of God's presence. What is that like? Sometimes we use language like, I'm coming into his presence. Now, the Bible does use that language, by the way. I was going to be critical of that language. And then I thought, I'm glad I thought of this, because when he would have pointed it out to me, and then... That would have been good for me to be humbled like that. But it wouldn't have been good for me to say something untrue. So Psalm 100 does say come into his presence with singing, doesn't it? But it doesn't mean this, that we came here and we started singing. And when we hit that one chorus, that's when God showed up if you're from a charismatic, I've got plenty of charismatic in my background. If you're from charismatic or Pentecostal background, you may have to unlearn some of those ideologies, truthfully. I love the passion. I love the expectation. Many charismatics and Pentecostals, they're all over what I'm talking about tonight. There is an expectation of meeting God, and that is right and godly. But the idea that we sang, in- we sang the presence down, you know, we came into his presence. Like, we got with that first song, man, that warm-up song, we're in the courts. Temple courts. And that next song, man, that got us into the court of the Gentiles. And that next song got us into the Holy of Holies, man. It was song number three. And then we were in the presence of God. Paul says, you are the presence of God. Well, he is present in you is what he says. God's presence is in you. So as the church gathers, that is the presence of God. You aren't God. Let me strike that clearly. But the presence of God is in his people. And so as you gather, God is so we need to be careful about our language coming into, there's only one who brings us into the presence of God and it's Jesus. It's his death and his resurrection that brings us access to the father. We dare not come into the presence of God without Christ. That is a scary place to be because we are judged, but Jesus comes. So whenever Jesus is proclaimed, the work of Jesus is highlighted. That is ultimately, he's the one who leads us into the presence of God. It's not a song that is so subjective, isn't it? If you just think about it. It's just so subjective. That one song, man, it's dripping with the oil, man. That song is anointed. We sing that song, and I am there. Man, I'm going in on that song. Okay? Someone else is here for the first time and has never heard the song before, and they're just kind of going, what? So if it was objectively the presence of God, okay, so it's not just a song. I'm not saying that God can't meet you in a song. It's not a song. It's not a certain leader. That, that preacher brings me to the presence of God. That worship leader, when he's up there, man, the anointing is in, I'm there. Or it's not a certain musical vibe. That's a big one. It's not a musical vibe. Man, there's like, when Kendall's playing piano, there's that one kind of note he hits. And man, when he hits that note, I can feel the Holy Ghost, you know? Well, I don't know, man. I, I mean, I love Kendall and the way he plays, but it is the Lord Jesus that brings us into the presence of God. And it's really not us coming into the presence so much. It's us becoming aware of his presence. That's what it is. It's, so a better way to say it is God is present among his people through the preaching of his word and the gathering of his saints. And when we sang that one truth, I was aware of what Jesus has done for me in a fresh way. When the Bible was opened up and we read and taught, that passage was taught, the the Holy Spirit spoke through the word and illumined my heart, illuminated my heart so that I saw something of the truth of God. And I was excited on the inside about that truth. His presence, I was made aware of his presence, I was made aware of his love towards me, his care for me. So I don't want to be the word police on all that, but it is, it is really helpful, and I'm not going to be the word police on it, but it is helpful for us to think theologically right that God is present in us always. God speaks through his word always, and there are certain times that he makes us more aware of his presence. There could be a sense of real peace that we receive, a truth that brings real peace to our heart. That's wonderful. That's being aware of the presence of God. Could be joy. We, hear our sin, we receive communion and are freshly aware that our sins are forgiven and there's a joy in our heart. Yes, that's becoming aware of God's presence. We could be convicted of sin. God speaks to us and we're aware that we have sinned against his holiness. And that is being aware of his presence to convict. So we, he is present with us and makes us aware of his presence. Sometimes we do sing a certain song. I'm not going to take back what I said before about that one, key, uh, one chord or whatever, but uh, we hear a certain song, and the truth of that song stirs our faith, stirs our hope in Christ, because that truth resonates with us, and we say, God is for me. Yes, and I'm aware of God's presence in my life. Expect his presence. Lastly, and we're done. Prepare for his presence you can prepare for his presence by making, asking God to make you aware of his presence. I think that's the prayer. I think there is certain language that we use that, again, I don't want to be the word police. I do think we say, Lord, Holy Spirit, fall. That That is language out of Acts 2. But it wasn't as if literally the Holy Spirit was up there and he wasn't here, and all of a sudden he dropped down. It's just a human expression of saying, we're aware of you Holy Spirit working in us, fall on us, fill us absolutely that 's biblical language come spirit of god yes that 's spirit that 's language uh, that 's bib, uh, a biblical truth, unless by that you mean he was not anywhere here, and we called him down with that certain song and our certain passion because then we 're manipulating God if that 's the truth like we 're making him do stuff no we 're inviting we 're making ourselves available, come, Holy Spirit. Is a great prayer. Lord, we want to make ourselves available to you. Make us aware of your presence and your nearness. So pray. Pray about the gathering. Pray for those who are leading. Come early to the prayer meeting. The Bible says you have not because you ask not. And sometimes we're not aware of his presence because we just kind of show up here uh, whenever distracted and not even thinking about it. And about the fourth song when we're closing everything up, oh, now I'm kind of thinking. It's always the fourth song where I sense the Lord. Well, that's because the way we came in. He was already here before you got here. He was here. So come early and undistracted. See, we're often unaware of God because we come in frantic. We're you know, we're discombobulated and things are happening and it just, ah, it just takes a while. So come early. Listen for content. This is what I've been thinking personally. Listen for content. Don't, Listen for, in a song, listen for what we're saying. I don't really like that song. That's okay. Listen to what we're saying. Song's not for you anyway. It's for the Lord. So listen to what we're saying on that song. I really like that one. Good. Listen to what we're saying, singing on that song. Listen to it. Think about the words, believe the content, take the words and mentally say, yes, Lord, I believe that truth for my life. Yes, I interact mentally with the truth. The truth of Christ connects us to the presence of God. Lastly, I would just say connect with his people. Now, that may sound kind of funny. How do you detect the presence of God? How do you prepare to encounter the presence of God? You connect with the people of God because in the people of God is where the presence of God dwells in his church. And particularly seek to cultivate unity. That's a celebration of his presence, and it makes us aware of his presence among among us. We are the church. We are his temple. The building's not holy. God's work in his people. Uh, Justified sinners. We're justified and declared righteous before him, and we're growing into that holiness. The building is not holy. The sanctuary is not holy. We are the sanctuary. So we need to revere God's... We don't need to revere a building. We don't need to revere a section of the building. We want to be thankful for all that God's provided in our new building. We don't revere that building. We actually were to revere God in his people. And so how can I cultivate unity? Because that celebrates God's work among his people. Well, I can reach out to people that are different than me. I can identify with... I can make friends with people that are different. I can encourage. I can pray for. I can bless people different than I. Lastly, thank God for his presence. As we're preparing, we want to thank God for his presence. God, you are with us. You are encouraging us. You are helping us. You are speaking to us. You are forgiving us yet again. And every time we gather, we ultimately anticipate a future day because the story doesn't end with the church as his temple. It begins in a garden, It goes through a tabernacle and it goes through a temple and the story goes through the person of Jesus and the story goes through the spirit poured out upon the church, the new temple, the people of God. But ultimately, it ends in heaven. So we start in a garden, we end in the city of God. Revelation 21, "...then I saw a new heaven and a new earth, for the first heaven and the first earth had passed away." And the sea was no more. And I saw the holy city, New Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride, adorned for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, this is what the voice from the throne says. Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. He will dwell with them, and they will be his people, and God himself will be with them as their God. He will wipe away every tear from their eyes, and death shall be no more. Neither shall there be mourning nor crying nor pain anymore, for the former things have passed away. One day we will hear from the throne, the dwelling place of God is with man, and there will be no separation. We will see him face to face for eternity. No sin, no, the meeting's over like it is. None of that stuff. We will be with him in glory forever. That's where the story ends, in his presence, unhindered for eternity. He'll wipe every tear from our eyes, from the griefs of this life, and we will be with our God. The story of his presence is, and they all lived happily, perfectly, ever after in his presence. Let's embrace this part of the story, the privilege we have, the distinct Gift of grace that we can gather in His presence as His people. Let's pray. You've been listening to a message from Grace Church. For more information, visit our website or write us at podcast at gracechurchfrisco dot